Welcome to the Truth Perspective on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, and today is Sunday, June 18th, 2017. This week on the show, we're taking a break from the endless madness in the news to get some historical perspective on, well, how things got the way they are. So several weeks ago, we had the opportunity to interview an author, James Bradley. He is no relation of mine. Uh, he's the best-selling author of four books on U.S. involvement in East Asia and the wider Pacific. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties at the time, which meant that we lost the beginning of that interview. We still have a good hour of it, though. So rather than just let it collect dust in the files, we've decided we're going to air it. And I will just give a brief introduction to his books. Then we'll play it for you. So there are four books uh, all of them New York Times bestsellers, I believe. Uh, the first is Flags of Our Fathers. That it was actually made into a Hollywood movie. Um, then there's Flyboys, A True Story of Courage. Now, the two books that we're most interested in, the ones that we've read, actually, um, and in part because they give a wider perspective on U.S.-Chinese and U.S.-Japanese relations, and indeed with relations of other East Asian countries, um, they are the two most recent books, The Imperial Cruise, A Secret History of Empire and War, and The China Mirage, The Hidden History of American Disaster in Asia. So The Imperial Cruise concerns the 1905 diplomatic mission by then Secretary of War William Howard Taft, as well as the larger implications of then President Theodore Roosevelt's foreign policy, particularly with regard to Japan. The book exposes the blatantly racist and exploitative policy of the United States in its attempt to extend its influence into the Pacific Rim, acquiring Hawaii by contest by conquest and the Philippines by purchase from the Spanish after ostensibly having entered the conflict to aid the Filipino freedom fighters. That American occupation was marked by torture and repression, mass murder of the very people they had come to help. So that's the Imperial Cruise. The China Mirage was uh, James's fourth and last book. This details American involvement in China since the 19th century, during the height of the opium trade, through the conclusion of the Second World War and Mao Zedong's rise to power. The premise of the book is how the U.S. failed to understand Asian cultures that led to poor decision-making by policymakers in the U.S. State Department, as well as by both President Theodore Roosevelt and his cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. Ultimately, Bradley makes a suggestion that the war in the Pacific, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, would have been avoided had President Franklin Roosevelt not been unduly influenced by the China lobby that supported Chiang Kai-shek. So much of this is covered by James in our interview with him. Um, some of the earlier conversation Obviously, we went back to roughly the origins as sketched out in his book of this time period. And the earliest conversation was about the the drugs trade and the resulting opium wars in the mid-19th century. I should warn you now that you're going to hear every now and then thunderclaps and possibly pouring rain in the background of this. That was because we were interviewing uh, James from he was in Vietnam where he's 
currently researching for his fifth book. And it was obviously raining cats and dogs at the time. Um, must have been some kind of monsoon event. Um, however, it won't affect the, the audio. I think you'll still be able to hear him loud and clear. I think his location is a clue to what his next book will be about, The Vietnam War. In summary, both of these books, Imperial Cruise and The China Mirage, there's some overlap between them. There certainly is in terms of the time period that's examined, so the mid-19th century, roughly to the mid-20th. Obviously, you cannot fill in everything that happened in, in that time, but the book isn't really about any one country. It's about the relationship, the dynamic that went on between the US and these countries, primarily China. Um, because as you'll see, the US relations with countries smaller than China were all framed by the question of how the US could develop its access into China proper, into the mainland of East Asia. So the story kind of begins in the mid-19th century or early 19th century with the Opium Wars. Um, That's an incredible episode in itself. Uh, James briefly sketches it out in The China Mirage. And uh, thus begins what, from the Chinese perspective, is the century of humiliation. The country itself was never completely colonized, but it was piece by piece being carved up and the way in which that happened was via the mass importation of opium into the country. It's fairly well established with no historical uh, argument really about what went on. What's probably not clear to people though is the scale of it. It was incredible. Basically, in the space of half a century, China went from having a trade surplus, an enormous trade surplus, particularly with the European colonial powers, and then particularly with the the British Empire, to having a massive deficit. The incredible amount of silver and other precious metals and currencies uh, that the Chinese had built up was essentially drained out of the country in a very short space of time. And that was in large part because of um, the Western powers, particularly the British Empire, striking gold, so to speak. And what this was, was instead of settling, uh, instead of paying for goods from China in hard currencies, they realized they could sell drugs into China for enormous profits, and with that, with the the proceeds from that, they could export goods produced in China and raw materials out into the West and all over the world. And this was, uh, it's it's horrific to think of it that way, but that's how it was. It was a gold mine. It's it's basically one of the things that made the British Empire as powerful as as it became. the Chinese, of course, were dead set against this. I'm thinking of the, the the elites of the country, of course, and the people as well. They did not like this one bit. But uh, 
it was too lucrative a trade. It enticed people, some some of the traders in southern China in particular. Um, to even even when it was made outlawed and was all made illegal, it still continued to take place offshore. Eventually, the Chinese authorities put their foot down, and there's a an incident where the young emperor, I believe, sent a letter to Queen Victoria in London pleading with her to stop this and pleading a moral case, saying that it was immoral to essentially push drugs on their country and to profit from it. The British answer was more or less to send gunboats to China, which by then were superior in their firepower and to sink Chinese ships and to fire at the ports, and thus began the first opium war. Um, the upshot of that was the beginning of the colonization of parts of China, and the opening of treaty ports, where finally Western traders were legally allowed to be in China, where before, up till then they'd been kept out, or kept at an arm's distance anyway. And they could continue to trade in opium and then, of course, in, in other commodities. And a lot of people got exceedingly rich, not just in the UK, not just in Europe, but in the US, because people across the so-called civilized world were enticed by this opportunity to get into China. It had long been acknowledged as being an incredibly wealthy part of the world in terms of the sheer number of people, it's always been extremely populous relative to other parts, other countries. In terms of the sheer number of uh, raw materials that pass through there or that are from there, and in terms of the sheer number of high-quality manufactured goods that come from China. So this is not a modern development when you associate made in China with just today. Made in China has been the way of things for a long, long time. If anything, we're now only returning to that status quo. Anyway, um, the U.S. wanted in on a piece of the cake, and they weren't the only ones. The Russian Empire, too, was coming down from, from the East Pacific, its only specific region, and uh, wanting ports just like all the other imperial powers of the time. Anyway, the First Opium War gave, if you like, the Western powers a foothold. And where this ties in with a story, really, is that the first Americans to arrive there became some of the wealthiest. They, some of them were wealthy to begin with, but really the U.S., if you, when you think of the U.S. elite families, you know, the, the East Coast, the Ivy Leagues, all this, these people cut their teeth on what they knew then, what they called euphemistically the China trade. But the China trade left out the part in brackets where it was the China trade, i.e. the opium trade, they were, that was substantially what they were dealing with there. And a lot of people got fabulously rich, and this money began pouring back into the U.S., as it did into the British Empire, uh, another French too, of course. And James Bradley details in his book how some of the, the, the biggest names uh, during what was for the U.S. at the time, its period of development. I mean, its its industrialization took place then, and it's hard not to see the the the, the way that things connect. That it looks quite like 
I'm not, I can't remember if Bradley stated this explicitly, but it looks as if China, the U.S. industrialization took place pretty much thanks to the incredible profits made from selling opium to the Chinese people. Because then these um, very powerful families emerge. Um, they use their money well, if you like. They reinvest it in the country. And the U.S. is first, you know, big public hospitals. Some of its biggest buildings, uh, its biggest cities uh, are substantially built from the profits made from the so-called China trade. Um, Harvard. Uh, Princeton, they were all, there were already some foundations for these uh, Ivy League universities, but they were substantially became Ivy League in quotes as a result of the money that poured in. So anyway, one of the families that did extremely well was thanks to a man named Warren Delano. And Warren Delano was the Warren Delano was the grandfather of both. Theodore Roosevelt, who was U.S. president at the turn of the century, around 1900, and later, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, U.S. president for four terms in the 1930s and 40s. And that gives you an idea of, of the connection with the power between doing well in China and what it meant to the capitalist class, if you like, to get access to Chinese goods and Chinese labor and U.S. power. So um, that's some background on the entree into China. And basically thereafter, it remained a case of opening it further and keeping it open. The big strategic thing of the day was the open door policy. And this was uh, negotiations between the emerging U.S. empire and the European empires as to who gets what of the Chinese pie and, and more broadly access to East, East Asian resources, both people and, uh, and goods. And everything else that follows from that is basically a consequence of the management of this open door policy. I'm talking about the Spanish-American War, um, perhaps not World War One exactly, but certainly um, World War Two, certainly the Pacific theater of World War Two, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all these major events of the 20th century are uh, arose because of this primary geostrategic concern of the 19th century. The open-door policy entailed getting access to China. And they, they had a foothold from the first Opium War, and then the second one gave the U.S. even more of a foothold. But it remained the case that the, they could not colonize the entire country. The population was ha almost half a billion already at that time. Um, Furthermore, because it was so large, because they were competing with each other, the open-door policy stipulated that no one country could get to dominate all of China. And thus it was a case of managing access and dividing the spoils between the various European and U.S. empires.
So that is the rough overall context in which James Bradley tells you the two, the stories. It's really one story, but I suppose it's across two books of how the specific characters, particularly the U.S. President Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, in the Imperial Cruise, um, went about ensuring uh, U.S. dominance in East Asia, or at least ensuring that the U.S. was not pushed out by the European powers in China specific. You will see that the our interview with James picks up at a point where we're discussing what mentality the Americans included and the Europeans included had in going to China and Asia and what justifications they gave for prying open these countries to trade, uh, ostensibly for trade and sharing culture. But of course, in reality, it was for plundering and domination. And one of the things that is brilliantly described in both books, actually, it's the uh, explicit, explicitly racist um, rationales given for U.S. expansion and European expansion of the time. It, it's it's if you were to hear this today, I mean, it would be so on PC. It would be you, you could you could probably be you know put up for hate speech. But back then, this was just normal in um, universities and. Heck, in the media, among the common people, it was it was commonly understood that the white race was the superior race, and that it was tasked with by God or whoever or whatever with taking over the world to help it, of course, to civilize it, to bring the light of civilization the world over. Um, and Bradley does a very good job of showing. The, the the mythos that, in particular, in, in this context, that the U.S. elites had in in justifying doing what they were doing, as they saw it, and in, in a way they saw it correctly, as they saw it, they had come from Europe, their ancestors, arrived on the east coast of the U.S. They had colonized the whole continent to the Pacific coast, and then why stop there? They were on a mission, they believed, to carry on westward, to, quote, follow the sun. They were the Aryan master race. Now, if you're thinking, well, hang on a sec, that's Hitler stuff. No, Hitler came, Hitler was a Johnny-come-lately to this kind of mythic narrative building. This was common among the British and American elites in the late 19th century. They were the Aryan master race, destined to conquered the planet and it was explicitly stated and it was it was uh, propped up in policy it was stated in the media it was taught at universities it was an explicit scientific racism uh, there was a hierarchy of races and the white man was top of course it was it was crazy but we know that i mean there's no <laughs> it, it, it was crazy also in that it was logically inconsistent in itself um i want to give you a 
something that ties in with what's going on today, uh, the incredible Russophobia. So people are bringing up this idea that, well, it's a continuation of the Cold War, you see. The U.S. was the capitalist society and the USSR was the communist one. And so there was a conflict of ideologies. Okay, and we have some kind of inertia involved in, because Putin's the leader, it's he's trying to recreate the USSR. So, yeah, it's still a Cold War, and that's why they're bad. Well, it, it's logically inconsistent, right? Well, get this, back in the day, the same kind of attitudes were held about the Russians. Even though, arguably, Russia then behaved more like the Western countries. They had an empire too, and they were expanding. However, um, Roosevelt was explicit in saying, well, actually, I'm quoting, I'm going to quote Bradley here. This is his commentary on it. Roosevelt realized that the Russian extension of the Trans-Siberian Railway meant that China's riches would flow overland to Europe rather than across the Pacific to the United States. You see there, that's a geostrategic, I mean, that's the 19th century, and they're thinking big picture there. They're think that's, that's Eurasian integration stuff. How do you, how do you ensure that um, Russia is blocked from doing what we want to do? Uh, a professor of the time, Professor Franklin Giddings of Columbia University warned, the great question of the coming 20th century is whether the Anglo-Saxon or the Slav is to impress his civilization to the world. Roosevelt would have gone to, uh, he, he went to Harvard himself, and he would have heard all these ideas about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race um, and that it was charged with taking over the world to save it. Bradley writes in The China Mirage, Roosevelt learned about the glorious destiny of the, quote, higher races and how the Aryan had arisen in the Caucasus to found the white race, migrated to Europe to become the Teuton, and then on, gone on to the British Isles to morph into the most superior race of all, the Anglo-Saxon. It's ludicrous to us today, because we've since heard it from the mouth of Hitler, and it will be forever tarnished by that. It'll only ever be that narrow, that mythic, arc will only ever be taken up by a fringe minority and never go any further. Okay? But that was the dominant narrative of the time. Like I said, Hitler was, was late to the show. This was being taught in universities. And and just, I mean, just think of the madness of that. So they're, they're on a mission. They're from the Caucasus. And then they went to Germany. They, actually, it's stated later that um, Roosevelt would say in speeches that, you know, how about how our great people arose from the forests of Germania in the Roman era, eventually became to Britain, came to Britain, became perfected, and then came across the seas to the US, and on we go. We're carrying the torch now <laughs> to China. So this was, this the, it was rife. The political discourse was rife with this kind of stuff at the time. So, that's kind of where we lead into our conversation with James. I'll just say one last thing. The books are very well written. They're easy to read. There's two basic storylines, and then it peels off to one side or another at different times to give you some more detailed background about specific events. So, for example, the colonization of the Philippines. If you want to understand where Rodrigo Duterte, the current leader of Philippines, is coming from with his 
um, remarks about U.S. colonialism, you read these books and and you'll understand why this guy remembers his history. Okay, so without further ado, I'll pass you over to our interview with James Bradley. Enjoy. The last question was the kind of, well, I, I asked if there was a qualitative moral difference between Western white people and Asians, let's say, or specifically Chinese in terms of their their, their worldview. And you were saying something that led up to... Um, Led up to you, you referencing a story in the New York. Oh no! Did you you referenced? Uh, you kind of cut off at that point, so we weren't sure exactly what you were saying. So if you if you remember what you were saying, maybe you can just take it from there. I was saying I don't think there's a qualitative difference between any humans. I mean, we all you know motivated by the same thing. So there's really no difference between East and West morally, but. In terms of practice, in terms of practice, and you can judge it morally. I'm mm-hmm. just a historian documenting it. Right. That that the United States started on the East Coast, and that was an invasion. That was an invasion of another country, just like Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then we invaded all across the geography from Virginia. Why did we really want the revolution? Because George Washington was a surveyor, and he was surveying land beyond the Allegheny Mountains. And London had a problem. They had Cape Town in South Africa, and they had, uh, you know, the east coast of America, and they didn't want to fight every African in Africa. And they didn't want to fight every Indian in uh, America. So they said to George Washington and the boys, "You, you can't go beyond the Allegheny Mountains. And they said to the Cape Tonians, you can't go beyond this. And both rebelled and both expanded. Well, in the American expansion, we killed all the natives. I mean, I, I, this is not like an accusation or a shock or, or I'm, not, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I'm just a historian. Mm-hmm. I, I, I went, if you walk across the United States, there were people there that don't look like me. And now there's people that look like me. So that's the history of every country. The reason the Yamato people are in Tokyo is because they killed all the Ainu. And, you know, the survivors went up to Hokkaido. It's the history of every country. Mm. So yeah. east and west. But, but in terms of expansion with military industrial might, that's a Western phenomenon. Right. And do you think you think the the industrialization in in Western nations give them what seems to give them that edge where they were able to sail around the world and you know if necessary blow up um, coastal towns and stuff in order to force a an agreeable economic uh, situation. It's the same today. I mean, nothing's changed. When you talk about the drug money. Back in the opium time, times, I mean, I don't know how many London banks have paid fines for facilitating drug cartels. Really, how right. many of the biggest name, biggest name Main Street banks in the world, uh, it's you know, are rigging markets and and funnel and get caught once in a while moving drug. I mean, drug money is so huge. Where is it going? 
none of the banks are participating. Yeah, it's right. an old story, but it's it's a it's a new story. It's today's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I mean, in, in that sense, then you would put down the defeat of. I mean, the the reason that that uh, the U.S., for example. Uh, and the British and whoever else participated could um, dominate and force the Chinese into uh, into accepting these kind of fairly punitive uh, economic uh, deals was because they they basically it was a case of might makes right the Chinese couldn't defend themselves didn't have the the the, the military prowess to to defend themselves or to, to fight against the the West's kind of industrialized militaries. It's kind of as simple as that yeah. in a certain sense. Well, I, so what's the question? Uh, just, just is that is that pretty much the the bottom line that there's nothing ideological about uh, why the Chinese uh, uh, submitted to uh, these punitive trade agreements with the West? They they were forced to by Western military might. Oh, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. we came in. I mean, I learned, you know. In school, again, I learned Vasco da Gama, went out of Portugal, and I learned about the wonderful school he studied at, and, you know, how for, he had foresight, and he was a discoverer. And I didn't realize that after he got around Africa, he went to India and, you know, went to a town and bombarded it mm. and hung, and then some of the leaders came out to negotiate, and he hung them up from the ships, whatever, so the town could see you know, I mean, right. That's uh, it's called international commerce. As soon as the U.S. was more or less, you know, from coast to coast, um, it, it, it seems like there's a couple of stories that began, and one of them ended. So the first story I have in mind is the beginning of U.S. Um, imperialism as it was being practiced at the time by the Europeans. On the other hand, that kind of uh, it only it only had a short lifespan because there was another development taking place whereby colonies were i mean maybe there wasn't enough of the world left to colonize so that ended and there was a different kind of um economic conquest or or, or control at a distance that began to take place the reason i'm separating these two things is because the us had a brief colonial period and it was, it was substantially in the Pacific. Um, can you tell us a bit about the Philippines? Why was the U.S. in the Philippines, and what came of that? Okay, so I'd, I'd like to, I mean, I agree that if if you read American history, you're going to say that statement you said, that America had a brief outburst of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And I, I I would rather restate it that from the 1600s, we, you know, we built the country on uh, colonialism. Right. I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin. It took, it took the whites from Europe about 200 years to to get from the the east coast of the United States out to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Well, Wisconsin. What that that's a uh, Indian name. Yeah. My hometown is an Indian name. There's no Indians in my hometown. So we we, colon, we we colonized the whole country. Then in the 1890s, 
some intellectuals, I, I, you read it in the Imperial Cruise, some intellectuals said, oh, my God, we ran out of killing. Hmm. This has fed us. We're the barbarian in the uh, jungle who's going, you know, and we're fed by this. We've grown by this. And you could look at economic charts. We're America. Look what's happened because of what we did. So we got to San Francisco to the California coast, and we said, by Jesus, we'll just take the army that did all this killing, and we'll just move it out to another tribe. And there's beautiful uh, books on the Philippines that were produced in the 1890s that said uh, the tribes of the Philippines. The tribes of the Philippines? What, what do you mean? Well, there's chief whatever, and then in this area, there's chief whatever. And it was, uh, you know, I could understand it. I was an American. Mm-hmm. I, I owned a house in Wyoming or California or New Mexico or whatever. All this was land because I killed the people who had it. I got it. So we went out to the Philippines. And let's take Hawaii and Guam. Why? Because those are the highways. Those are the transit points. To empire. So this was Teddy Roosevelt. We'll have we'll have these you know uh, jumping off posts, Hawaii, Guam, and then from the Philippines, it's an aircraft carrier, just like Japan. Teddy Roosevelt thought he already had an aircraft carrier when Japan pointed at China, and the Philippines would be another one. It would have been a lot cheaper, and you know millions would not have died if uh, he had just rented some warehouse space in Hong Kong. We didn't need to take the Philippines. Later in his life, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, regretted, said it was a huge mistake, but he never told the American public that. Right. This is what's crazy about it. I mean, if it's about making money, well, there's ways to do that. But there's, there's about more than that. Like you said, the frontier couldn't come to an end. There had to be somewhere else to send the fighting men. Um, and it, so there was this kind of strategy in mind, even before Roosevelt, right, whereby they were thinking China is a great prize. We need to get access to China. We need stepping stones along the way so that our ships can refuel. And Philippines was sort of that, but at the same time, they went whole hog and tried to colonize and manage and run the country, and it was a disaster. I mean, is that is that actually taught in U.S. schools just how much of a disaster it was? Yeah, but let, let's go back to these poor Americans. The problem is, is you Brits. They looked at the Brits, and Admiral Perry in 1853, when he went to Japan, he was ashamed that he had to go from the east coast of America. Not the, even the Pacific. America was so weak and so, you know, infrastructure undeveloped in terms of the world that they had to sail along their British cousins' routes. Mm. And the English could laugh at them in London and on the coast of Africa. And then the Americans had to beg for coal in Cape Town from the English. And then they went to India where the English were in the process of you know, t- killing a lot of people. And, you know, it's all British, British banks, British. I mean, I'm an American. 
I'm an admiral, 1853. Uh, there's not even an American bank out there. Singapore, I have to deal with the English. I'm humiliated. The Americans, right. Theodore Roosevelt said, yeah, we're going to stop taking the British highway to Asia. Here's our chance. And he built a navy that sprung out. Come on, Hawaii. Mm. Everyone in the world wanted uh, Pearl Harbor. That's a wonderful port to project power. Well, Japan's an aircraft carrier. Philippines is an aircraft We had to do it the Pacific way. The English had already done the Singapore-Hong Kong thing. Mm. This is an interesting point because the, I mean, the British Empire beforehand had set the standard for what is civilization and the standards then for how to go about maximizing uh, the benefits of it. And so the U.S. was following in this wake, so to speak, um, and realized... But, but again, can I interrupt for a yeah, second? Yeah, sure. You know, for your listeners, I don't want to, you know, make this sound like some conspiracy theory, like this is a secret. No. If I went to Harvard, they actively said, come on, it's... How, you have to come to the conclusion that the white race is superior. We're spread, as Theodore Roosevelt said, the evidence is we're spreading over the majority of the earth. The Africans were at the white feet. Asia was at the white feet. Hmm. So there was really no, I mean, it wasn't much of a debate. And, and for you to think, you know, that the whites were not superior, I mean, give me your evidence. I suppose it depends what you what you mean by superior, you know, um, in the sense, of, or whether you think, okay, superior doesn't necessarily have to be a pejorative term, or it doesn't have to be a positive term either. It just means it, it just it is what is, right? But I mean, there's a there's a contemporary, well-known contemporary of um, Theodore Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Cecil in in the, in the in the UK and Great Britain, uh, Cecil Rhodes. Uh, you probably know of him. Uh, he was a uh, well. I've been in. I've been in. His home, I was in uh, his home in South Africa about two months ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, then you know. I got. Well. I got. I got married in South Africa in 1979. Oh yeah. Wow. Um, but so, Cecil, Cecil Rhodes. Yes. Yeah, he's he's an interesting character, um, to say the least. And I mean, for me, he embodies this, that spirit of of the white man's colonialism uh, at that time, in particular. Uh, and there's a quote attributed to him were, I'm paraphrasing here, but he he was basically lamenting the fact that the whole world had been kind of almost, you know, most of it had been colonized at that point. And, and he, he he mentions looking up at the stars and seeing these worlds so far away and, and, and laments the fact that they're so far away because if they weren't so far away, he would, he would colonize every one of them, you know. Uh, so for me, that's a particular mindset, you know. I'm not sure... I'm sure the vast majority of people on this planet don't necessarily, when they look up at the stars, think, uh, ooh, you know, if only I could get my hands on those, you know, uh, <clears throat> how rich I would be or something, you know. Um, so for me, it just seems that there was a particular mindset um, amongst these, the leaders of, of colonial Britain and, and then in the U.S. afterwards that um, that wasn't necessarily shared by the rank and file of the ordinary people of those of those countries and, and in, in terms of what they did and how they did it and as you said racism wasn't around at the time uh, it was just what was but uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here I just think that uh, the, there's something particular about the mindset of these people who led the, the British Empire and its colonialism and the and the uh, and the Americans afterwards um, that 
that make, that sets them apart from from the average person. But I suppose maybe that's self-evident anyway. I think everything you said, if you replay it, you could say it about today or any day in history. Yeah. Right. That there's always there are always people who are the leaders, basically, who are who are doing these things. And I suppose my only issue with it is that uh, is that as you mentioned about uh, you know this this part of American history and the fact that a lot of America America was industrialized partly anyway on via the use of opium or profits from opium from selling drugs basically. Um, and, and the history of, of the British Empire, for example, it has, is whitewashed in, in British school books uh, very much so in terms of the, the excesses of, of what British forces did overseas to and other European countries as well. It's not really told, and <clears throat> because it's um, and I'm not sure if that w- if it would be a benefit for people to know the true history of, of this or how, what if anything it would change, you know. But it just seems to me strange that because they. They, they, it's actively removed from the from the school books. Is that a conspiracy, or is that just uh, is that uh, you know d- d- is that just part of, of of the way things happen in the sense of people aren't interested in this sordid, the more sordid side of their history, of the history of their nation and what was done, and they prefer to look at the positives. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be conspiratorial from a government point of view, hiding the truth of our history and what we did to the poor people of the world. You know, to and the only reason that today we are, are in the West are wealthy. And, and uh, the you know the top top rank of, of, of the world's nations is because we it's been a, it's be, that is based on our wealth is based on the exploitation and the impoverishment to some extent of many other people around the world and uh, you know if that's not told uh, and it's not told the an alternative whitewashed history is told that makes it um, that that puts a positive spin on it, then there's more popular support for a continuation of these policies today that are spun also as, for example, in the Iraq war, freedom and democracy, civilizing the people of the world and stuff, you know? So, um, yeah, I suppose that's not a question. No, but I'll I'll leave your statement as it is. Okay. So, I mean, we talked about, as Neil was saying about earlier on about your, your two most recent books, they basically focus mostly on, on Japan. Uh, there's a lot in there uh, on Japan. Uh, it's not so much about, about China, but um, if we can maybe bring it up to, to today, what what is the what's your what's your perspective on what's going on in Asia today in terms of where China is vis-a-vis the U.S. and where Japan is? I mean, there's a lot going on with North Korea. Uh, there's a lot of disinformation and, and media spin. But what's your your take on on what's going on in in Asia? today vis-a-vis the U.S.? Well, pick a country. Do you want to talk about Korea or China? Or yeah, the recent stuff in Korea particularly. Well, Korea, you know, the like I'm an American, so maybe what's my number one slogan or the number one word, you know, land of the free, maybe. Or um, let's think of it. Okay, Korea. What are the three words that all Koreans through the centuries, or the eight words, or what's the what's the one? It's like Korea is the shrimp caught between two whales, and the saying is when the whales collide, the shrimp get crushed. So, right. so the the fact that uh, Russia, China, America, Japan. Everybody in the world can get focused on the Korean Peninsula 
So that's the keyhole. That's where Japan invaded uh, uh, China. 30 million dead, right through that Korean keyhole. That's the keyhole that Teddy Roosevelt gave to Japan, killed 30 million people. That keyhole has been very dangerous for China. Hmm. That keyhole, that keyhole, the American uh, military napalmed and bombed and unbelievable. North Korea was a molten glass, whatever. You can't say we bombed it. We ran, it's so small, we ran out of sights uh, almost immediately because we had bombed them all. Mm -hmm. So we kept bombing and bombing. There were molten glass sites. Oh. We're just bo we were boiling the rubbish for years. So we did the North Korea. It's unbelievable. So if I was a North Korean, yeah, I would be in a defensive mode, and I'd get nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And then what? What is very interesting is that if you go across America, I'm in Vietnam right now, but I just went across America. You talk to Americans. They're, they've got images of a crazy young kid shaking his fist at America. Mm -hmm. Those images are very clear. And they see them in the newspaper. They see them in the magazines. They see them on TV. They see them on their computer. They're really well told. And the story of the crazy Asian is really well told. Well, if you look at a couple of my books, you see... You know, Teddy Roosevelt told that story about how the king of Korea was so crazy that he had to give it to Japan. Hmm. And that resulted, that resulted in 40 years of enslavement of the Korean people. And then that's where Japan launched World War II into China. So it's not a great, you know, these great ideas about Korea. You know, it's, it's, it's a tinderbox. Now, let's talk about the crazy boy that everybody thinks we should kill. You know, mm. the president is asked, do you think he's sane? <laughs> is he sane or insane? Well, Bill Clinton was a rapist in office. Is he sane? I mean, mm. let's, let's ask some sanity, you know. Mm. Anthony Weiner just was a congressman. He just cried in federal court regarding his uh, pedophilia, okay? That he was going to be in the White House close to Hillary. Mm -hmm. So insane, just a minute, this guy's insane. Let's talk about insane. So you get the United States military, number one in the world, that's still pissed because they didn't win in Korea. That's what people have to realize. All these, you know, Americans went to Korea and they didn't gain an inch, the border held. Mm -hmm. Because China can't allow foreign power to get up to its border the last time they did that, guys, 30 million Chinese died. Japan was an aircraft carrier. When Japan invaded China and killed 30 million Chinese, who, with whose oil and steel? Franklin Delano Roosevelt's oil and steel. you got to look at it. This is not an accusation. Mm. Wall Street was so happy when Japan went into China. It takes a lot of oil and steel to kill 30 million Chinese. So right. up, until per, up until Pearl Harbor, we were fine to 
support the military-industrial complex of Japan. It was a profit center. What? Something changed. Do you know what changed? Why was it if everything was fine? Well, if they were happy to essentially see uh, Japan's military build up with Californian oil, um, what changed then for that to end and for the U.S. and Japan to end up in a war? It was okay when Japan was on the leash. That was Teddy Roosevelt's idea. We'll let them jump on to Korea, but we got a leash. We're the white man. And they'll only go as far as we want. I mean, I, this is all documented in Imperial Cruise. He's having discussions talking about how far you'll go. The Japanese are bowing to him. Oh, yes, sir. We would never go beyond that line, you know. Right, but then they and invaded they China. They wanted to go beyond the line. Yeah. They got a bunch of militarists in who said, hey, we, we don't have to be the pawn of America. We'll do it ourselves. Well, when you when you want to do it yourself, then it's regime change. Right. They want to go so why? So why Pearl Harbor? Because it's a, I mean it's hard to say in a sentence, but. <clears throat> When Franklin Roosevelt went to see Winston Churchill up in Canada, there's so many books and pictures about him. But as you see from the China Mirage, while he was gone, these geniuses in the deep state, just like they're manipulating Trump, they manipulated the Japanese deal where they cut off the oil and and Roosevelt didn't know. So for one month, See, if you read history books, you read, we cut off the oil and it led to war. Well, if you spend about a year and a half trying to get the documents about this, as I did, you'll learn that Roosevelt didn't cut off the oil. Congress did not cut off the oil. No American alive on the day they cut off the, not no American, but the American public on the day they cut the oil didn't know we cut the oil. This was done by the geniuses of the deep state. Mm. Roosevelt learned a month later and politically had to accept it as a fait accompli. Well, guess what? Before Roosevelt even knew, the emperor was being told, unless you do something dramatic, we're going to die. It's the end of Japan. So Roosevelt doesn't even know. He's up there singing songs with Winston Churchill up in Canada. Hmm. And the emperor of Japan is being told, Roosevelt did this, and if you don't do something huge, it's the end of Japan. Hmm. So are you suggesting that the the deep state did that, cut off the oil deliberately to provoke provoke Japan and um, into something like Pearl Harbor or to and to get America into, into the war in the Pacific? No, 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 no. First no. of all, I'm not suggesting anything. I've, I've documented it all. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really not, there's no thesis or hypothesis here. I'm talking about the book, The China Mirage, in which I document that the deep state geniuses who did this believed that it would bring peace. Really? Because the Japanese 
would never face the strength of America. They can go fool around with Chinese in a inferior race, but right. they never fought a they never fought a big white man from the University of Alabama. I mean, the little Japs, boy, they would never ever. We can do anything. We can cut off the oil and and piss on it. They're just an American client, and this will bring peace to Asia. It'll rein them in. They thought. Why? No, but why? Why? It'll rein them in. See, the Japanese need our oil and steel to kill the Chinese, and we were fine with that. But now we realize they have a mind of their own, so we're going to cut that off. And then the Japanese military machine will grind to a halt. And then guess what? Moderates in the Tokyo government will take over because we're the deep state. We got all the strategy. You know, we went to George Washington University and Georgetown University and Yale. And we, we have a lot of time and money to strategize. So we're going to cut off Japan's oil, and that will result in the humiliation of the military. Therefore, moderates will arise in Tokyo. And just trust me. Well, okay, but hey, why don't you tell the American people or the president? Well, because the president doesn't get it, and the American people will never get it. So they cut off the oil. Another genius move. In their calculation, in their calculus, this would force regime change and problem solve. But as you've explained, at every stage, every time they, they come in and they say, we got to do it this way, problem solved, it rarely works out that way. I mean, um, w- one of the key things, I think, and I'd like you to talk about it a bit, that is the cause of this mirage in the U.S. about how things were in the East, in particular in China, was the China lobby. Um, I think this is a key part in all this because it's sort of like the elites in China told the elites in the U.S. exactly what they wanted to hear and then they were completely blindsided by later events. Can you explain, what was the China lobby? Well, first of all, you know, like Google and Facebook right now are censoring the Internet. And there's bad words you can't use. Hello? Yes. <clears throat> I yeah, don't know if they just cut us, cut us off for me saying that. No. By, no. The, way, <laughs> by the way, I'm in, I, just to bring your listeners up to date, I'm in Khon Dao, Vietnam, the island of Khon Dao, C-O-N-D-A-O, and it's raining tropical cats and dogs. Yeah. We hear, and uh, can you hear the rain? We can hear that. Yes. We heard the thunder before, Hunter. <laughs> oh my God! Is it? Yeah. Here you're gonna. The lightning just went, so you're gonna get some thunder. So I hope the I hope the listeners aren't too irritated by the background noise. It's very calming. <laughs> you're still clear. So what are we talking about, Danny? The China mm-hmm. lobby. I think it's an important part oh, in understanding how yeah, the no, myth. No, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. China lobby is a word is a word suppressed, just like Google and Facebook now are suppressing, you know, editing. They call it, you know, they're trying to help us, but it's censorship. So the China lobby was such a hot term that in 1960, 
Now, the China lobby was formed in the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt. And it rose to real power defending Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan in the 50s. Huge political power. But in 1960, a guy writes a book called The China Lot. And he has a contract. He writes the book. The editors edit it. They print it. And somebody visits his editor, Macmillan. And all of a sudden, the book's not published. Not only not published, all the copies are uh, burned. Right. It, 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 it takes another 14 years for it to come out in the paper then. So the word China lobby has been excised from everybody will say, what's the China lobby? But it was this huge force. So in Washington, D.C., the Washington newspapers wrote about the China lobby as having enormous influence. From Richard, you know, from Franklin Roosevelt to Richard Nixon. Amazing. So I don't know if your listeners know the story about how Richard Nixon committed treason by asking the president of South Vietnam not to agree to the LBJ's Paris peace talk conditions until after the election. Well, that message was transmitted by uh, Mrs. Chenault, the key member of the China lobby. That was 1972. No, 1968, LBJ election with Humphrey. 1968, China lobby was uh, begun, you know, back under Franklin Roosevelt. Had enormous power. And I'm not talking conspiracy. we got to get it simple. Mm. See, right now the world's complicated. The Internet and all these, you know, people can fly in an airplane to China. Back in the 1930s, nobody went to China. Come on. It's a three-month trip. So, yeah, maybe you were in a lecture with someone who went to China, but, you, you know, you didn't know people who went to China, and you didn't know any Chinese. It was illegal for Chinese to be in America. We had the Chinese Exclusion Act. So you were white, you were Protestant, and you didn't know any Chinese. So there's this extremely wealthy Rockefeller-style family in Shanghai that knows how to talk to Harvard people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They know how to dress. They know how to talk about Jesus. They know quotes from the Bible. They know Shakespeare. They went to Harvard, Wellesley. They spent decades in the United States. And they learned what America wanted. And what America wanted was the China mirage. America looks at China and thinks, Someday they'll be like us. So, you know, the famous quote from the Vietnam War movie, uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket, mm -hmm. that, you know, when the sergeant comes up yes. and says, what inside every gook is an American waiting to come out. <laughs> so, so today, Americans are waiting. When will China, you know, democratize? When, when are they going to get rid of that horrible communist leadership and then experience freedom? You know, it's, it's, this has been going on for 300 years in the American mind. Yeah. So they're, imag they're imagining that America has a better way and if China can get towards it. Well, China is building the biggest idea in the world, the, the Silk Road. We better get going and realize 
you know, they have a few centuries of experience doing things well. Mm. But the China lobby, the China lobby, its purpose was to get money from Franklin Roosevelt for Chiang Kai-shek. So Chiang Kai-shek married into this family called the Song family. And there was a banker Song. And there was a, you know, I mean, I can get into the details. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, there's books written about it. There's books written about every one of these characters. And then Chiang Kai-shek opposed Mao. So one of the Song sisters went towards Mao. The other two went to Chiang Kai-shek. The Chiang Kai-shek sisters propagandized into the United States just like you do today with millions of dollars paid to journalists who are not journalists. And uh, we supported Chiang Kai-shek. So we gave Chiang Kai-shek, this loser, more money than we paid for the atom bomb. And then after he lost, we said, oh, we'd like to make an announcement. China has ceased to exist. China is now this island in the Pacific, Taiwan. Well, why? <laughs> but there there's 600 million people in China and there's hardly anybody in Taiwan. Why is Taiwan officially China now? Well, because Chiang Kai-shek is there. Oh, so all my life I, I was told that I couldn't go to China because Mao wouldn't let me in. He hated Americans so much he wouldn't let me in. I didn't realize it till later. It was my State Department that kept me on. Mao would have welcomed me, but the United States said, Mao and you 600 million, you're not real Chinese. So this sounds might sound ridiculous to the audience, but I'm 63. For, mo for the majority of my life, my country, my leaders said this island in the Pacific, this is the country of China. And Mao's China was the false or communist China. Um among among the countless light bulbs that went off my head reading your books was an understanding now I think of the beginning of the the Red Scare after the Second World War. Um, I found this 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 episode fascinating. Can you explain about John Service and the China Hands? And how that led into the into McCarthy's witch hunt and this fascinating paranoia about who lost China. Okay, I will. But after I said that Taiwan was China, you said yes, and and Mao's China was communist China. No, the State Department said it didn't exist. There was non-recognition. Right. We we didn't say there was a communist China and Taiwan China, and you can go to either one. We said one, you know, it's too evil to even exist. We won't even talk about it. Hmm. So one journalist, you know, Walter Cronkite, name all the famous journalists, you know, I don't know, you know, from the 1950s. None of them went to China. Too intimidated. They just reported State Department handouts like they do today. So one, one reporter from Baltimore goes to China in the 1950s it's such an event that Time magazine reports on it. 
an American reporter went to the biggest country in the world. Are, I mean, are your listeners realizing America says the number one country in the world with most people, you know, I would think that'd be an important country to know something about. Mm. It's illegal to go there and we don't want you to go there and we don't want any information about it. So a reporter goes there. When he comes back, Dwight Eisenhower takes his passport away. So we don't know about China. I mean, look at the campaign. What we know is China rapes the country. China's unfair. Front page of the Times, China just shot 10 CIA guys. Yeah. I mean, China China's indescribably bad, and they need a change. And the change is they should become more like America. This has been the belief since the beginning. I mean, if today it's China has to be democratized, then it was a fervent belief reinforced by the Chinese lobby, namely very powerful Harvard-trained uh, Americanized Chinese that, um, oh yes, any day now China is going to, to embrace America, is going to become Christian even. Um, mm. Mm. And That's where the money, can I interrupt? Sure, go you ahead. Just, yeah, that's where the money was. Any day China is going to be Christianized. You saw the letters in, you know, articles. New York Times, Time Magazine, Life Magazine. The Chinese are straining trying to be just like us. They want to have a San Francisco, a St. Louis, a Miami. They want, you know, Christian churches, potluck dinners. <laughs> and if we just support Chang, he's trying to get it through their thick heads. And mm. you're laughing. You're laughing. But this is no theory. I mean, you yeah. see it in the book. Yeah. And the, and the Americans are like, Wow, we're challenged by the uh, uh, depression. You know, we have our own insecurities. Europe, they're snobbish. But here's this country wants to be just like me. So every week when my grandparents went to church, now we'll take up a collection for the missions in China. Hmm. Well, what did that mean? That meant that there was a missionary from our community. Now, it might not be our local town or my my neighborhood, but in some cir circle, some ring, there was somebody out in China. And he would write letters back. And the letters were about progress. The guy sitting there, you know, for five years making no converts, the Chinese are laughing at him. And he's writing letters, you know. We're praying to God and there's hope and, you know, nothing's happening. And we're funding this missionary thing, which is a multi-million dollar, excuse me, assault on China. And it comes out of the East Coast, mostly Maine and a lot of East Coast money. We're going to save the pagans. And then all of a sudden, this military guy, this... Chiang Kai-shek, you can make up your own opinion about him, says, I want to be the military ruler of China. China's all fragmented. And I'll marry into this China lobby woman, Mei Ling Song. They, they have a funnel into American money. So all of a sudden, the guy's talking about democracy. You know, he slits people's throats. 
He sleeps on top of dungeons where they're being tortured. But he becomes an expert on democracy and Jesus Christ and the Bible. And he, he becomes a Southern Baptist, right? Oh, he wants to get baptized into the religion of his wife, who that was their their uh, conduit into the United States, the Southern Baptist religion. So all of a sudden, he just understands Jesus and wants to bring China to Jesus. Not Jesus to China, but he's going to bring all the Chinese to Jesus and an American Jesus. And then... Franklin Roosevelt sees the vision of the China line. Wow, the two, the two biggest countries in the Pacific are going to unite. And it'll be okay because China wants to be just like America. Did, I'm not kidding you, but you can see Franklin Roosevelt yeah. writing these words yeah. in my books. And there was no, I mean, there's no evidence that that was actually, there was any, any will amongst any significant percentage of the, of the Chinese population uh, that they were inclined towards Western Christian values, right? Yeah, but that's the point of the book. The The president's ideas didn't go to China. They went to somebody in a room who told him this is what the Chinese believe. Yeah, it was a feedback loop that kept the yeah, mirage it going. Was feedback, it was a mirage. Yeah. So the Americans were talking to each other. If you call the you know, Henry Luce built Time Life. Time Life, he's like CNN, fake news, yeah, baloney. Mm. So you called Henry Luce, Mr. President. I I think that if you give a hundred million dollars, it'll send a hundred million volts of electricity through China, <laughs> and they'll see our commitment and redouble their commitment to become Christian. Okay, well, thank you, Mr. Luce. You know, wow. $100 million, 100 volts of electricity. Shock and therapy. The, and see, the Chinese are just these dumb little people. They need to see that the master, no, that the master cares. And if the master cares, they'll see that we're kind and they yeah. want to become Christian. And I'm not making this up. Mm. So, so, I mean, my grandparents, the listeners' grandparents or whatever, went to church and put in dimes and nickels. This turned into millions of dollars for the missions in China. And the mirage was they want to be just like us. So the China lobby comes to America, goes to school. They study, how do Americans think about China? Oh, they think we're all going to be Christian. It's a joke. But we'll feed it back to these idiots. Uh-huh. So, so they just they go to Time Magazine, New York Times, Washington. They have this huge machine that says, "Let's go to church. Let's let's read the Bible together." China just can't wait for a, a Rooseveltian democracy, New Deal. We're going to call it the New Spirit. Hmm. Roosevelt goes nuts. They're copying the New Deal. So they're sophisticated propagandists, and they milked Franklin Roosevelt for more money than he spent on the atom bomb. Was there anybody being anybody uh, uh, in the U.S. government at the time being more practical or being openly, being honest, more honest, I suppose, about about the reasons for that? Because I mean, that kind of a narrative that a person tells themselves that doesn't have any basis in reality is usually for the for the point of achieving some other other goal. And I mean, obviously, other practical goals would be. Uh, getting access to economically to China, you know, was there anybody actually talking 
in, in practical terms about why we needed to get access to China over and above the kind of like they want to be Christians? Well, of course, as I said, Warren Delano, the grandfather of, of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was very clear why he should go to China, to make a million dollars. Right. And there was also, there were some people in, in China. I mean, at this point, say it's the 1930s, right? There's been about 80-some years of American missionaries um, going to China um, living there and, and and raising kids there. So there are some Americans that are born in China and some of them leave their gated communities and they inevitably learn the language and meet the people and actually understand where they're coming from and they observe what's really going on there. What, what I'm getting to is what I asked about earlier. I, I'd like you yeah, to John talk about service, John's service because he stands out from the madness of the of the mirage. You know, it's it's... I mean, for the listener, like we're not talking about somebody inconsequential. This is John Service. This is a nice man. He's born in China, missionary parents. He's a good boy, but he's just interested in the truth. So he's the kind of boy that, you know, would go outside the gate and look around and talk to Chinese people. And Mm. he's the kind of boy that when you send him to a private school in Shanghai, you know, some of his idiot friends would just sit in a room and look at the wall and, you know, look at a book. And he'd go outside the school, walk across Shanghai. He was a great runner, tall, good-looking guy. So he's walking around Shanghai, seeing the poor, that, you know, he's going where boys, where the teachers wouldn't let him go. But it's just intellectually curious. He comes back to the United States and he says, I want to help out China and America. So he applies for the State Department, and this is brilliant. He doesn't just know Chinese. I mean, do you know how many languages are spoken in China? Oh. If you say you if you say you know, nobody knows. Nobody so, knows. so he's he's multilingual. He knows a number of different dialects: north, south, east, west. It's a long story, and he's a great catch for the State Department. So he's in China in the 30s, and he's listening to what Franklin Roosevelt is saying. And he knows Chiang Kai-shek. He knows the China lobby people. He knows everybody. He's this up-and-coming guy in his uh, late 20s, early 30s over this period of time. And he's just an honest guy. And he can see that Mao's the future. People were walking over mountains to get to Mao. People were running away from Chiang Kai-shek. The people were voting for their, on their feet for Mao. No matter what you read, and I, I know, I mean, this, you might get a billion complaints that I said this, but this is what happened. The mandate of heaven. So no matter what you think logically, the mandate of heaven is why President Xi can rule right now. It's settled upon him. And the mandate of heaven moved to Mao, and the millions moved towards him. And it was an illusion that Chiang Kai-shek had a chance. Mm. But the United States supported him, just like we support all the losers that the people don't want, from Kabul to Iraq, or, I mean, name the countries. You right. Know? So Chiang Kai-shek, you know, we supported. Why? He was this Christian and blah, blah, blah. So John Service... As a State Department employee, he does something that 
became illegal later in the State Department, and that was telling the truth. And John Service made this huge mistake that the China mirage in the United States said that Chiang Kai-shek was the future and everyone wanted to become Christian and Chiang was their champion. And he's sitting in China and seeing people running towards Mao. And he knows Mao. And he has lunch with Mao. And he's in Mao's cave and he's talking to him. So he does something again that what, the State Department, this might shock if any current State Department people are listening, there used to be a time when someone in the State Department could tell the truth. And John Service was so naive that he told the truth. And he said, he said it wasn't that he supported Mao. He didn't argue for Mao. He just said, we got to wake up, America. Chang is going to lose and Mao is going to win. Now, for this, he was kicked out of the State Department. He was hounded all his life. He wasn't allowed to rent apartments in America, got hounded by the deep state. And then finally, after the Vietnam War, which John Service could have kept us out of, warned against, the State Department held a ceremony to apologize to John Service for ruining his life, for calling him a traitor. And they said, God, you're right. Well, Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, was uh, on the floor above. He didn't attend because the China lobby would have knocked his head off. Nevertheless, within 10 years or so, Kissinger is making the opening to China, right? And that changes everything again uh, in the okay, moment. But, uh, but can I just, sure. again, you know, this is the American Western narrative. Yeah. China opened China opened up. Well, I remember, you know, one of the first time I went to Beijing, I was in the uh what's that nice hotel on Tiananmen Square, the Beijing Hotel. And I'm watching reels of film about Beijing during my lifetime. And Mao's welcoming the whole world. China was open to the world. The opening to China was America saying we're going to open Chase Manhattan in Washington. We didn't open China. We, we said we will stop ignoring China. Now, let's talk about opening China. As you see documented in the book, The China Mirage by me, Mao says in 1945 in a telegram to Franklin Roosevelt, why don't I come and sit with you in the Oval Office and we'll talk this over. I'm going to win. I'm going to be the emperor of China. Chang is going to lose. I'll bring Joe in line. At that point, Franklin Roosevelt could have met with Mao, but, you know, the China mirage prevented this. So Franklin Roosevelt dies. Mao Zedong doesn't want to screw around with America, doesn't want any wars. He reaches out to Harry Truman, but guess what? The deep state says, you can't talk to guys like this. And Harry Truman fails to prevent the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So Mao reaches out to every president. He sends a friend of his that he knew for 20 years to see uh, John F. Kennedy. The friend got to the Secretary of State, Secretary of State, 
said, what do you want? The friend, a famous author, Edgar Snow, said, Mr. Secretary of State, China wants good relations. Secretary of State gave him 10 minutes and kicked him out. So Korea, North Korea wants to talk to America. The new president of Korea wants to talk to North Korea. But the American press says North Korea is a threat. We have to deal with it militarily. That's not what South Korea thinks. America says we have to put missiles into South Korea. That's not what the South Koreans want. They're riding against it. But you, but you can't see this in the American media. So like the China lobby is not some big, strange, unusual thing. It's happening today. If anybody's watching any corporate media, they're getting variations of the same story. And the same story is being written by, so, you know, it's just, it's not true. Yeah, it's... I mean, every, every country has propaganda. I'm not talking about white people in the United States. Every country has, has their own, you know, inbred racism, nationalism, and propaganda. The problem is when the biggest country in the world right now with the biggest military... They believe that they're not subject to propaganda. You know, the Tao Te Ching, the ancient book of Chinese wisdom says, when the wise man thinks he's wise, you know, trouble begins. It's one of the great things about what you've done to dispel the mirage as it was then because it just makes so much sense for this this kind of mirage that's still here with us today. Um there's something else, and there's a particular story in all of this um, in terms of opening up and the U.S. opening to China or China opening to the U.S. and vice versa. Um, at one point, this is in the 19th century, um, because of the U.S. going to China, inevitably what always happens, inevitably there's trade exchange, cultural exchange, and people start to flow in both directions, Right. Tell us the story about the Chinese who, who went then to the United States, especially to the Western states. You mentioned it briefly earlier, the China Exclusion Act. What was going on that led up to what, on the one hand, was an open-door policy for Americans in China, on the other hand, was a very much a shut-door for Chinese in the U.S.? Well, if you're um, – by the way, Neil, where are you calling from? We're calling from France. Where? Near Toulouse. Oh. Well, if my good friends from Toulouse go to the number one tourist site in the United States, New York City, not Disneyland, it's New York City, then they can go to the south point of Manhattan and invariably get on a boat to go to the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And the Statue of Liberty, of course, was built in France, in Paris, gift of France. And at the bottom are those words that everybody in the world admires. You know, give us your helpless, your free. We take immigrants. This is our history. There's a Statue of Liberty. She's beautiful. Well, at the same time that that Statue of Liberty was put up there, we said Chinese aren't human. So in other words, French coming to New York were human. That 
I could understand. Chinese coming to New York, that was illegal. So the biggest country in the world, it was illegal for them to come in. Now, what's the reasoning for Congress to do this? Well, as you see in the book, Congress, which studied the matter, must have cost, you know, a fortune, these committees. This must have been my great-great-grandparents' time as taxes paid for this. And they came to the conclusion that the Chinese brain is too small to get democracy in it. The cranial circumference of the Western white brain is bigger, and we are more civilized, and we can get democracy. But those little chinks, you know, they got those little noggins, and you can't get democracy, and then we're going to exclude them. We, we, we stopped excluding them in 1963. So if you were uh, French or English, and we excluded you as a non-human from 1882 to 1963. I, I wonder if, if any French people would remember that. I mean, oh, I yeah. wonder if that would influence French Americans. <laughs> you know, so oh, that's yeah. how we thought about that's how we thought about the Chinese. Now, there was a problem. Abraham Lincoln said, "Let's build this railroad." from this point to this point. Well, this was amazing. Just right now, the Chinese are doing the new Silk Road around the world. Yeah. That's the biggest idea in the world. Well, the biggest idea in the world at another time was when Abraham Lincoln said, let's have a transcontinental railroad. I mean, holy man, you put a railroad across a rich country like America, that's a major... Okay. So they start from the east going west, and they start from the west going east. In the west, they started in California, and they're in San Francisco, and they start to make the railroad. These are German, Irish immigrants mostly, white people. You know, they built Germany. They built England, and they hit the Sierra Nevada mountains. Sierra Nevada mountains are all granite, and they're full of ice and snow. And they throw down their picks. You got to bring in the Chinese. They built the Great Wall. Chinese come in. They don't get drunk. They, they manage themselves. They're like peaceful. And the, and the governor of California says to the president of the United States, without the Chinese, we couldn't have built this railroad out there. The whites couldn't do it. So the Chinese build a railroad. Then when you take the final picture of when the railroads come together, the picture you see in the history books, there's thousands of Chinese standing around, but they're not in the camera frame. The Chinese laid the rails that are in the picture, but then the whites pushed them out of the picture and took a picture with only white people in it. Mm. Well... The railroads fired all the Chinese, the project was done, and they spread out across the country. Now, if you look at Chinese, what do they think about? They think about being successful, the kids go to school, happy family, good food, save the money, and go to bed early, get up uh, early. And they, ha they were very successful throughout the West. And Stephen Ambrose, the historian, said, Every American Western town had a Chinatown. What's wrong with John Wayne movies? They don't have John Wayne waking up in a Chinese hotel. 
being served breakfast by a Chinese, his laundry done by a Chinese, his horse fed by a Chinese. The Chinese were like extremely successful merchants all across the West. Mm. And this pissed the Irish and the Germans off. Now the Chinese built a railroad we couldn't do, and now they're making more profits than us. And this, this, this racial fear uh, came to a head, and we started race cleansing. So think of, I don't know, where, where, where are humans race cleansing right now? There was Bosnia before, Senegal, uh, Southern Sudan. Southern Sudan's a good example. Some guys coming in camels, and they shoot everybody and separate the women and burn the stuff and take the valuables. So it became open season to do that on Chinese. And as you'll see in the book, it's documented. These white people came from their part of town into Chinatowns all across the West with guns and said, you've got 15 minutes to leave. Get on the train. Get on the ship. They marched them down to ships, ransacked their homes, stole everything, shot a number of them. And concentrated them in San Francisco and a few Chinatowns. So that's the history of the Chinese in the United States. They were non-human, below human. But the China lobby, they were accepted. They were Rockefellers. You know, they went to Harvard. There was this elite. And the elite realized Americans look down on Chinese. They have no affinity for Chinese. They won't even let them in the country. But what Americans love is the China mirage. They love the idea that China is going to become Christian. They have no evidence. They've never been to China. But the idea, the pictures in Look Magazine, Life Magazine, Time Magazine. There's a new church in Shandong. A new cardinal went to Kunming. There's hope. There's hope. As a missionary said out of Yale, he said, China was the, the North Star. It was our guiding light. Do you think that China, you think the China morale still persists among U.S. politicians today in the same way? Well, not, I mean, are U.S. politicians, what is that, a class of, of like, of, of animals? Of animal, yeah. I mean, of animal. <laughs> no, but U.S. politicians come from me. I'm yeah. a citizen. So, well, I mean, the the quality of me creates the politician. mm. The U.S. politician is me, an American citizen. The citizens create the politicians. They pay them. Amongst the, I don't know, in terms of, let's say, I don't know, Trump's, like the Trump administration today, have have you been able to glean anything about what they're, policy is towards China, if it's changed in any way? Well, Trump is actually making, you know, he's being criticized in the press as just this idiot. Right. And then he's he's the first one to see the biggest idea in the world is the new Silk Road project. So, you know, I'll talk to a Morgan banker, J.P. Morgan. He says, what's that? Well, it's only the biggest idea in the world. And Trump sees it. And he's trying. But he's being subverted by the deep state that would prefer he just use, come on, let's go back to basics. Japan's an aircraft carrier. 
China's too independent, so we have to hate them. And the front door is Korea. So we're banging the gongs for Korea. And then if that doesn't work, the South China Sea. Oh, my God, that's an emergency. Mm. We might have to go to war tomorrow. So they're both prongs, you know, towards China. What, what the deep state wants is to, you know, hit China in the chin because they're brilliant. You know, they think they can uh, fight China. James, I think we're going to end the, our interview with you here. You've been a super sport. Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with us. My pleasure. Good to talk to you guys. It's been a great conversation with James Bradley, author of The Imperial Cruise and The China Mirage. Cannot rececommend them highly enough. James is currently working on his next project, which we very much look forward to. And we wish you the very best of luck. Thank you. I'll have to look up the word ensconced, and then I'll know how you feel. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All Good right. chatting with you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. That wraps up our show this week. You've been listening to The Truth Perspective. Thanks again to James Bradley, and we highly recommend you check out his books. We'll be back next week with another show to be confirmed. Until then, take care and have a good week.